Today's sermon title, message and theme is giving up on discouragement, which really, as I thought about that, it's similar to saying that we want to hold on to encouragement. But just because someone tries to be encouraging, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're able to let go of being discouraging. In fact, if you've ever looked at how many resources there are, if you do a quick Google search or look in the reference section in bookstores, there seems to be so much written, particularly about how to avoid and deal with discouragement. Some of those things can be helpful for us to focus on positive thinking and focus on just the good memories that you have, take time to rest. Perhaps you can go and consult a doctor to see if there's something physically wrong or to look that sometimes it can be as simple as changing your diet to help with how you deal with discouragement. But the reality is, as one source put it, I thought was very helpful. The reality is we all deal with discouragement. And if someone says, no, I don't deal with discouragement at all, run away. Don't listen to what they say because the reality is they're not being honest. Especially as we look at what is going on in our world today, there's certainly plenty to be discouraged by. But every time we meet together like this, Every time we open up God's perfect holy word that we already heard read for us, it's an opportunity to recognize that we're not alone to deal with our discouragement. God tells us how we can let go and give up on being discouraging. We'll highlight a few ways. The first comes from verses 19 through 22 there in chapter 10 of Hebrews where God addresses one of the reasons that we deal with discouragement. God tells us it's because we have fear. That when we allow our actions and our thoughts to be motivated by fear, we're missing out on the confidence that God provides. Fear causes discouragement. In fact, last week, In Hebrews chapter 9, we took a look at one of the greatest fears that there are, which is the fear of death. If you need some more encouragement on that, you can go back and read through chapter 9 to tell us how God, through the sending of His Son Jesus, helps us to overcome the fear of the unknown. Otherwise, without faith in Jesus, We don't have the confidence that we need to know that we've been forgiven in full, as we see here in chapter 10, that we've been cleansed of guilt, to be gifted sincere hearts, which means that we can come to God without fear of punishment. But as we think about that, the reality is if we don't watch it, sometimes when we read even the Bible, we can misunderstand what God's love is truly all about. I remember hearing once that guilt can be a great motivator. But what's the danger of that? When that fear is taken away, it reveals there's no true change 
that has occurred. In fact, one time a a friend and, and mentor of mine had shared that in his own life, as he thought about it, he realized this even from his own father growing up that he shared, as I'm sure we can all relate, when you get together as kids growing up, you start to dare one another. I dare you to do that. And maybe someone is brave enough to take up that cause and do the dare, but one dare leads to another till finally, I think, as my friend shared, one time someone said, I dare you to throw that rock at that house or throw it at that window. And that was too far. Every kid said, no, I'm not going to do that. But the reason why, was they said, was they said, well, if I did that and got in trouble, my parents would punish me. They would be angry. I would get in so much trouble. And that was probably true to some degree. But my friend shared something powerful from his father. He said, my father wouldn't be mad at me. My father would love me. And he said that hit him to his heart because he says, That causes him to avoid the negative things, not because of fear, but because he understood the heart of his dad who wants good things to protect him and then help him to avoid harming other people's possessions at that point. This gets right to the heart of even what Jesus tells us about our Heavenly Father. Mario already shared with the children's ministry one of these parables in Luke chapter 15, but another story that Jesus shares, a parable with two meanings, is often called the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. We won't have time to look at all of this, but it's actually not just the story of one son, it's there's two sons, there's two brothers. The first one gets all the attention, prodigal, meaning he left home. He demanded that he wanted his father's inheritance to disrespect his dad. But shockingly enough, the father who represents God gives the son the inheritance. The prodigal son leaves home, as you may have read and studied before, that he goes away and and wastes it all and spends it Until sadly, there's a a famine and they've hit hard times going through a recession, so to speak. The son finally comes to his senses and realizes that he needs to go home. Right there in that moment, if we think about it in light of fear, he could have feared being punished, couldn't he? In fact, if you read it, he comes up with a plan. He says, maybe, maybe I can ask my father that I could become a servant and work off the debt. But what he finds out, by changing his heart, by changing, having a change of his thinking, turning and going back home, instead, in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 24, when the father sees him, and in addition to um, clothing him and, and, and honoring and blessing him, he comes to this conclusion. He says, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. 
So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you, and you had never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had a celebration, and we're glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The first son, the younger son, feared for his own life. He realized by wasting all of what he was given by his father, he didn't deserve to come home and be welcomed. But he overcomes this fear, and instead, to his astonishment and to ours, the father doesn't punish him, does he? The father celebrates. This shows us that this son learns that day, and even imagine that years forward. He knows he can always come to his good father, never having to be afraid if he's messed up too much. Because God promises to welcome us with open arms when we repent, that's turning from our sin, coming to him by his grace. Now the older son, the older brother, he experienced fear as well, didn't he? What was he fearful of? He was fearful of music. He heard dancing. He heard celebrating. And then when he finds out that it's because his brother, who they all feared had been lost and was never coming back, fearing the worst that he was dead, instead of acting like a true brother, he should have said, my brother's home. He's alive. He says none of that, does he? All he can focus on is he gets a celebration. What about me? And the father even shows kindness again there, doesn't he? The father patiently takes time to say, but you're here with me all the time. Everything I have is already yours. But to this older brother, that wasn't enough. He missed the very heart of his father and chose instead to want nothing to do with it. I mean, talk about discouraging. The reality is, as we think about this, and every time we turn to God's word, it's an opportunity to think about our own lives and our hearts. And in this case, for us to ask this question, which, which son, which child can we relate to? Well, the answer to that question should be the first one. Every one of us should look at our own lives to realize born into this world because of sin. We want our own way. We're prodigals who go off to the far country in need of returning home to be welcomed only by the grace of Jesus. And yet the more we look at these stories, the truth of the Bible, if we're honest, if we don't watch it, we can also 
act like the older brother who was arrogant and selfish, jealous of the attention that his older brother was getting. And when we do that, it causes distress and discouragement because we can't get past looking to our own self. It causes not only discouragement for us, but for others too. The way to get past this is to recognize the kindness, the mercy, the generosity of God so that we don't celebrate our own greatness. But we avoid what the older brother did. If you notice, the older brother just wanted to focus on the imperfections of his brother. Did you see what the other son did? How dare him? How dare you celebrate that? When the reality is, by doing that, it pointed out his own imperfection, didn't it? Instead of being able to celebrate forgiveness and repentance. As we think about that together this morning, let's take this to heart to make sure that we always celebrate forgiveness not the attempts and demands for perfection or even the lack of perfection. May we never forget that apart from Christ, we are lost. But because of Him, we can be found and loved, welcomed and accepted. Christian author Robert Kaplan describes this whole parable by saying the key is to make sure that we see the grace of God, to celebrate God's forgiveness. God who relentlessly hounds those who don't want to celebrate. And the result is that he brings sinners home so that we can join in the celebration of God's love. And also to recognize there's love even for older brothers If you can picture it, it's almost like he has his fingers in his ears, not wanting to hear, but by God's grace, he can have his eyes open, his ears open, his heart open to see that it's God's approval that we so desperately need. The next way as we look at verse 23 here in Hebrews chapter 10, The next way to let go of discouragement is to watch our words. To make sure we don't hold back in sharing our faith. Verse 23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. It's a little bit of a play on words here because it's to hold unswervingly, which means hurry up, hold fast. In fact, It's the same terminology used on a ship to make sure that you're holding and staying the course. Don't veer off. Don't let your words get us veered off track. In fact, in James chapter 3, we see the same illustration used powerfully to show the power of how our words can often cause discouragement. James 3 Verses 4 and 5 says, Take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder, 
wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. We have big things controlled by small things described here. Ships and fires. And likewise, when it comes to the power of communication, we're meant to guard what we say. Communication is powerful, but just like anything powerful, like fire as we see here, fire is incredibly useful to warm and cook our food, to keep us warm as it cools down. But if we don't use it the right way, it's incredibly destructive. It's the power of communication. The tongue is such a small part of our body. We need to watch what we say. The reality is we're meant to look at this to to know that each and every one of us knows what it means to say something hurtful, careless, untrue, unwise, unhelpful, which is why we're directed here as we are considering letting go of discouragement, instead to hold unswervingly to the hope we have in Jesus, that God is faithful, God is always true with us, which is why we aim to let our words be true as well to aim to speak with hope, and to never give up, even when it can be discouraging. Sometimes we hear that phrase used, you talk the talk, but do you walk the walk? And it's a rhyming way to identify that what you say is one thing, but what you do is important. In this case, we're meant to see, yeah, but what we say is important as well. Which means practically, when someone points out if we've been untruthful, when someone points out you've been unkind, do you stop it there? Or do you add fuel to the fire? The reality is if somebody points that out to say that we're unkind or or not truthful, Myself included, I know that temptation to want to say, yeah, but who are you to talk? Did you say, hear what you said first? You're not perfect when you speak too, are you? And when we do that, then it puts it back on them, only for them to come back to us, and it quickly gets out of control. What we're challenged to see here is to put a stop to it, to guard what we say by doing what? Start by listening. Go even further to say, you know what? Thank you for pointing that out. Let me pray about that. Or even say, hey, how could I communicate better next time? And we're told the greatest motivation for it. Just as we already saw, we have a gracious Heavenly Father who welcomes us back to forgive us more than we can possibly realize. That's why we share the faith we profess, the hope that we have confidently. And yet sadly, and I don't know if you've heard this, but sadly, others have misunderstood the Christian faith to say, well, those Christians say that they speak better, but sometimes even Christians make mistakes, especially, right, when things get difficult. 
Does that mean you can't trust Christians to say one thing and do another? Well, no, as we see here, the antidote is just as we're doing now. The first step is the difference for Christians especially is we are, are called to admit it. We're called to address it. We're called to a higher purpose, to use our words to speak of God's hope. Which means when we fail, if we fail, we know we rely on God's help. Which even going another direction gives us permission to take the initiative. Isn't it powerful when someone comes to you, even before you say anything, and say, you know what, can I tell you something? I might have shared something before that wasn't truthful, and I want to apologize. Or something I said earlier, it wasn't very kind, and I just want to tell you I'm praying about that, and I want to grow. And then for the other person to offer grace and forgiveness. What does that do? It shows that I, I want to talk to that person more. I want to get to know that person because they're going to help each other. They're going to encourage one another. We're called to hold unswervingly to the hope that God gives that we profess by guarding our words, to use what we say, to avoid discouragement. And finally, verses 24 and 25, we're given another final way, which actually it's a combination of two. We could focus on each of them separately, but they are related. It's to think about helping others and to make time to worship together. A major source of discouragement, if we could all be honest, is actually in relationship with one another. Sometimes people do say things encouraging. Sometimes we can misspeak. But here we're told that the way to avoid it, the way to let go of discouragement is by prioritizing spending time with others. Because if we think about it, by doing so, it reminds us that because of our sin and selfishness, we can't help but think of ourselves first. And so when we spend time with others, it challenges us to make sure that we remember other people to spur them on toward love and good deeds. In fact, that word spur is a strong word to get our attention. It means to provoke, to irritate. But in this case, we're meant to irritate in a good way. In other words, don't stir up trouble. Stir up good things in one another. A step even before that in The very first part of verse 24 is even before you do this to others, it says in the Bible, God says to consider it. I've been enjoying learning from the Espanol versions of the Bible to say, okay, what does this mean in Spanish? Well, here's another example there. It's the word consideremonos. Very similar, to take time to consider Because doesn't it encourage you when others take time to consider your feelings, your thoughts, your goals, instead of being inconsiderate? I could be honest together this morning, and I hope I'm not alone. I am reminded of this every time I'm out driving or I'm out shopping. (laughs) Because without realizing it, I start to look ahead and I see someone coming and I immediately think, okay, that person, they're going to cut me off. They're not going to let me in. Or when I'm grocery shopping, I'm 
thinking, okay, I, I don't want to cut you off, but oh, that person's going to rush in to get ahead of me. But isn't it powerful when instead of that, instead of driving up, instead of the person cutting you off, the person says, no, no, go right ahead. I'm always pleasantly surprised. And in fact, what does it do? Well, I was wrong. That person lets me in. So you know what? I'm going to let the next person in. Go ahead. The reality is, we're called to do this, to consider others. Because it challenges at our very hearts that on our own, without God's help, without the help of others, we can't help but be focused on ourselves. Simply put, the reason why is because born into this world, we're empty. We're empty in need of God because only God's love can satisfy us to allow us to get past ourselves. But instead, if we don't fill ourselves with God, we look to other things to try to fill us which only leaves us more and more empty. The reality, though, is, is not that we're stuck on ourselves to focus on ourselves just because we want to make ourselves look better. The reality is that it causes conflict in relationships with others. Christian author C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says we do this because we buy into the lie that if only our lives were filled up with what we think we want, we would be satisfied. And if that isn't God, then we will never, ever be filled. The reality is what we seem to think is that we want to be smart, we want to be rich, we want to be letter, better looking and so on, but the reality is those things don't actually exist. But what does exist is comparison. Because even in the pursuit of being smart, rich, and better looking, the reality is when someone else who's richer, smarter, or better looking, and so on, when they come along, we suddenly are not able to find pleasure in what we actually have. The pursuit of what we thought would fill us up. What this is meant to show us is our emptiness cannot be filled with anything else but with God. He goes on to say, famously, that the answer is not to try to be humble on our own by saying, oh, you know, I'm not important. Oh, you know, I don't deserve anything because the reality is, if you notice, that still brings attention to ourselves, doesn't it? Trying to be falsely humble. Instead, as we turn to God's word, even as we see here, to consider others, this challenges us and changes us to tell us that when we're filled with the gospel, the good news of Jesus, then that means we're truly able to be interested in others, not because of how it makes us look, but simply for the joy that it brings. Jesus gives us true security, his encouragement, so we're not thinking less of ourselves, but we think of ourselves less. 
Practically, it means we don't have to be self-loving. We don't have to be self-hating. True humility frees us from constantly thinking everything is about us. What it means is that we can go to work, and work isn't about me. It means that we don't try to fill ourselves up by, by our, even our marriages, as good as marriage is, even that can't fulfill us. It frees us up to parent in a way that we want the best for our children. But we're not trying to demand success in order to make, it, make us look good. The reality is, Without God's help, we are constantly trying to prove ourselves to fill up our emptiness. Instead, there's a better way, isn't there? We can freely consider others not to make ourselves look good, but because of the joy that God gives. We can give up discouragement by taking time to do exactly this as we see here to prioritize time with others in worship and meeting together because it challenges us to hopefully move past our own desires. In fact, even as I thought about that, I was reminded of an elder from my church growing up who was a doctor, and in many ways I looked up to him, but he also exampled humility by taking time to prioritize spending time with me. And One time he shared even about his discouragement when it comes to even like this with worship. And one time he even shared, he said, that sometimes he can get distracted when we gather together. And I appreciated this because it showed his humility, to be honest. And what he said was, sometimes he can't help it, but he thought, well, why would we sing that song? That's not my favorite, or I don't like this one. And So one day he said God challenged him. He said, Dr. John, The songs we sing is not for you. It's for me. In fact, he said ever since that day, when it comes time to worship, he makes sure to prioritize praying, God, how can I serve you? How can I serve others when we gather? And make it a habit, which actually even answers another question, if you've ever been curious, that sometimes... People struggle with, oh, I can't miss a day, or how often do I go to church? Well, when you make it a habit, it's the desire to long to be together so that we're not worried about how often or how least often. It's the idea to say we don't give up, we prioritize it. It's our commitment to one another so that when we gather together, we can work past our struggles. We can encourage one another so that others can see And hopefully hear about our good Heavenly Father who welcomes sinners home when they see their own sin and their need for forgiveness. May we continue to trust confidently in God's love instead of fear. Asking God to help us use our words to profess in the hope that He gives as we spur one another on to love and good deeds. Would you join me again in prayer as we commit this to the Lord? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the power of your word. As we consider together 
this topic of discouragement. Father, I pray if, if someone is struggling, even as Rafa had said, struggling with discouragement to the point of even considering harming themselves, would you send your Holy Spirit to protect them, to empower each of us to remember even when we are struggling, there are others who may be to a point that they have nowhere else to go. Thank you for the truth of the gospel, which means when we turn from our sin and respond to your grace by placing our faith and committing to following after you, Jesus, it means that we can live confident instead of fearful. Father, each of us, we know we are humbled when we realize the power of our own words. Would you help us to live by grace, to speak honestly, to use the incredible gift of breath and words to build others up toward love and good deed. And all the more as we see the day approaching, knowing that one day Jesus will come. Thank you that you are the Lord of lords, the King of kings. There is no one higher than you. Which is why we trust in you. To use our lives to bring grace that's so desperately needed. We pray all this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen and amen.